You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. world and welcome everybody to Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Barnard. Thank you so much for joining me again on another exciting episode of the program. Today, my guest is the research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Center for Public Leadership. He is the host of NASDAQ's World Reimagined podcast, and he's the author of the new book, Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. Gotham Makunda. Gotham, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Oh, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm really looking forward to this, Adam. That's, uh, I appreciate your time today. Um, I'm very, the book is incredible. It's absolutely great. It's out now, by the way. Go ahead and pick it up wherever you get your books. Um, I want to jump right into this because you wrote uh, an initial book mm-hmm. regarding this theory that you have called leadership filtration theory. Yeah. Walk me through the idea of this and what it entails when it comes sure. to the idea of presidential candidates. So leader filtration theory is my attempt to answer a question that everyone, just, just, just about everyone has debated at some point or another, right? And the question is, when do individuals matter? So we all <laughs> saw that community bug. Um, so, <laughs> Troy and Abed in the morning, and you have to have it. Yep. So, uh, so we all think of, we, you know, we, we, we've all thought about this, right? So does it matter that it was this person in this place at this time, or would anyone else in the same place have made the same decisions? And it really didn't matter what person you got, right? And so that debate goes as far back as we have records of people having debates. You can see the ancient Greeks thinking about that question, right? And sort of going back and forth about, about whether it matters who the person is or, this, or is it all about situation. And could, people, researchers, right? Social scientists have studied this question over the last you know, 25, 50 years or whatever have basically come down on the answer that individuals don't matter that much. That it's really all about context and systems and structure and larger social forces. And so what I sort of, I came from the to academia from the private sector and what I said was, you know, like, I'm not sure that's true. Right. But the, the, the arguments for why it's true are pretty sensible. Right. They say that our individuals, right, and that if you're the leader of an organization, even a big, powerful organization, you've got competitors. So you can't do whatever you want, because if you raise your prices too much, your competitors will undercut you. And you've got internally, you've got culture and politics and budgets and, you know, an opposition. So you can't do anything you want internally either, because there's constraints on your discretion. But the thing that really matters, the thing that makes it but leaders sort of fungible, right? Like interchangeable, kind of like dollar bills. Is this idea that leaders are chosen by a process. They're never chosen, you know, at random. And so that process is evaluating all the candidates for leadership and examining them in great detail and saying, if we pick this person, what will they do? And so the process is just picking, you know, the process is just picking the person. But if they didn't pick that person, they pick someone else who did the exact same things. Right. So that that's what the research was generally saying. And what I sort of said in my first book was, well, it's true, except when it isn't right, because you know, when, when it, because what you're seeing is, OK, what that requires is that the process has this ability to evaluate people really thoroughly. But suppose that it didn't suppose someone came in from the outside or they inherited the top job or, you know, the corporate jet crash with all the alternatives on it doesn't really matter. But something happened that allowed someone to take the top job either without being evaluated or where that evaluation didn't have any impact on whether they got the job or not. And because they haven't been evaluated, they can be very, very different from all the people who could get that job. And if they're different, they would do things that no one else would do. And what we know about those decisions, right, decisions that no one else would make, is they're really high variance. Sometimes they're really successful. More often they're disastrous, but they're really never boring. Right. So these people who do the things that no one else would do and they tend to be either really successful or great failures, they're the leaders who have a big impact. The ones who where it really matters that you had this person at this place at this time. 
So I looked at that in a bunch of different contexts. And that was my answer. You know, like I, I want to do something small. So I tried to answer a question that's 4,000 years old, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no pressure or anything. Yeah, just some yeah, light no, reading yeah. for the weekend. Yeah. It's just casual. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so, so I did that. And so what I said is, you know, so if I'm saying that these unfiltered, let, so filtered leaders, because they're so evaluated, usually will be good, but not great. Mm. Unfiltered leaders can be great or awful. And what I said was, well, okay. And I mean, even just start with that, like that's kind of sounds like a person outsider who's coming in over the opposition of elites. Like, you know, that sort of sounds like in every politics. It's right. important to remember that first book was published in 2012. I wasn't thinking about anything that's going on in the world today. It's all too <laughs> a long time ago. Right. And so what I said, but in that first book, I sort of said, it, you know, at the end, I kind of said, look, you don't really know if someone's going to be great or awful. But let me suggest that if some, if you pick an unfiltered leader, who has characteristics that make them look more impressive than they actually are, that produce what I call false signals of quality, mm. then that unfiltered leader is really likely to be disastrous. And you kind of want to, you know, it's not worth the risk, right? You just want to avoid people who have these false signals. And so the four false signals that I identified in the first book were psychological and personality disorders where the examples I used were narcissism and psychopathy, out of the mainstream and highly simplistic ideologies, um, uh, sort of an, an either incompetent or extremely risk-prone managerial approach and unearned advantages like inherited wealth. So some people think that was a little weird. Um, right? <laughs> a little on the um, nose a lot here. Yeah, go yeah, with them. A little on the nose, yeah. A little on the nose. So, you know, a few years later, something happened. And I was like, <laughs> you know, let's see if we can take these ideas and, and, you know, synthesize them with the rest of political science and with manager, you know, with like management and organizational behavior and psychology and economics and see if we can put that together and produce a way of evaluating presidential candidates, mm. right? A way of looking at them in a way that anyone can do, just using information you get in the New York Times, no special research, nothing like that. And where you'd say, do I feel confident that this person can, can or cannot do the job? Right. That's the question. Even if they're not from my party, even if I don't agree with them, at least I feel okay that they can do the job, right? That's 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 what I want to be able to assess. And secondly, what I want to do is say the presidency is a phenomenal laboratory for leadership because we know more about the presidency than we do any other leadership position. Just as an example, there are more books about Abraham Lincoln than there are any other person who's ever lived except Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Right. So wow. we really know the presidency. And so what that means is because we have such great data, we can actually learn a lot about leadership in the presidency that we can't in other places where we don't really know what's going on. That doesn't mean the president and CEOs are the same. They're not. But it does mean that some of the lessons we take away from the presidency, we can apply to other positions. Right. So what this book want to do is the second thing was say, like, OK, is there a way to make our leaders better to actually say, well, let's, you know, let's let's pick the filtered ones who actually succeed when that's a good choice. And let's pick the unfiltered ones who are going to be great and not the ones who are awful. That's what the second book is about, specifically in the context of the United States presidency. I want to go back to something that you said a minute ago, because I'm, I'm thinking about all these different ideas and, and mm -hmm. thought process that you're having. And I'm, I'm thinking a lot about John Kennedy. Yeah. And I'm thinking a lot about George W. Bush. And mm -hmm. I know that seems like very juxtapositious to bring them both into the same conversation. Um, but I feel like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like JFK could be a very classic textbook example of someone who is a filtered person. Whereas uh, George W. Bush would be a classically unfiltered person, and I that, think about yeah. I think about two scenarios which are incredibly famous, and I'm, I'm sure everyone would agree with this. Um, I think about the Cuban Missile Crisis when it comes to John Kennedy, and I think about 9/11 when it comes to George W. Bush. And the context and the conversation, I mean, I remember, you know, during 9-11, I, I lived through it. I'm not old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. I wasn't born then. But uh, I know in both scenarios, the conversation was, what would have happened had it have been someone else? If Richard Nixon or another candidate had been elected president during the Cuban Missile Crisis, would we have survived that incident? George W. Bush, you know, what if Al Gore had attained the presidency? What would Al Gore have done during 9-11? Would his processes have been different? Do you think that it is a fair question to ask those and have those sort of philosophical arguments uh, in context to sort of a filtered and unfiltered president? Kind of walk me through that. So, uh, so not thought. only do I think it's fair, I think we have to ask that question because it is the only way to attribute individual responsibility to leaders, 
right? right? Like if we're not doing that, then what's the point of saying, you know, somebody was a good president or a, or a bad president, a good leader or a bad leader? We have to be asking, well, did it make a difference if they were there? So I, I think it's very perceptive to think of JFK as a filtered leader because that's exactly right. We think of him as so young, which he was, mm-hmm. but he had been in president for a, he had been in government for a long time. He'd been a congressman. He'd been a senator. Like he was a Democratic Party senior person when he ran for the presidency, and he won not the most senior, but absolutely someone who was well qualified to be the president of the United States. Um, George W. Bush, on the other hand, had only been governor of Texas for about five years when he ran for the presidency. And governor of Texas is actually not that important a job, which sounds weird. But in many ways, the lieutenant governor of Texas actually runs the state in a way that the governor does not. Um, right. So so we actually had even less data about George, George W. Bush's abilities than we might have if he'd been governor of a different state. And of course, in his particular case, it's like impossible to imagine that he would have been a contender for the presidency if his name had been George W. Smith. Right? Right. Clearly, he got an enormous boost from his family, and so that helped him out. So if we look at the two, so JFK's performance of the Cuban Missile Crisis is sort of routinely considered like the model of crisis management. And you know, we should give him a lot of, you know, we should give him a lot of credit. He, I think he did very well. We should acknowledge that there was a lot of luck there too, right? Like it wasn't just skill. I, I, um, I agree. I think there was, I think there's definitely a, a, a skill segment to it, but I think a lot of that had to do with a lot of really carefully placed lucky decisions, not just yeah. with him, but also with Bobby. And, you know, like a lot of parts had to really play correctly in order to survive that, that scenario. Yeah, and right. I mean, it could have gone very wrong, and it, you know, it almost did. Very, you know, more than once. And he also had the additional advantage, right, that Oleg Penkovsky was giving him data on the readiness of Russian nuclear forces. Right. So, right. So, I mean, so he was kind of, you know, he was playing poker when he could see the other guy's hand, right. which is an advantage too. Um. So, if we look in the so right, so it does not take away from filtered presidents to say that a different filtered president would have might have done just as well. Right. Because to be a filtered president, you have to have demonstrated your capability over and over again. Right. Right. You like like it is not surprising that you're good, but like you're still good. <laughs> we're, we're still happy about that. Right. Right. Um, George W. Bush flip side. So I'd say there are two like there are two splits we could ask of Al Gore. So first is if Al Gore had been president, would the attack have been prevented in the first place? And, you know, you know, I have to say my opinion on that has changed over the last year or two, especially with the declassification of the of the meeting with between the 9-11 commission and the Bush administration that just came out a little while, literally just recently. I was I just going to, I was going to say, I, I remember Keith Olbermann mentioning it. I think it was yesterday or the day before in his program that had just been declassified. And I, I had no idea. So I have to say, I mean, I'm like, I did my PhD in international relations and security studies. And I looked at this, you know, I studied this stuff quite closely. I was surprised to learn just how detailed the warnings that came to the Bush administration about 9-11 were, right? To the extent that there was a senior CIA officer who said that in the history of the agency, no president has ever received more clear warnings than George W. Bush about anything. Wow. Right. And so you can ask why they didn't react, why they didn't prioritize it. There are lots of questions about that. But it's hard for me to believe that Al Gore, a guy who had demonstrated, you know, very high levels of institutional competence over and over and over again in his career as both a senator and as a vice president, um, would not have taken those warnings seriously in a way that the Bush administration just doesn't seem to have. But the second one, which is, you know, is I would say is, is less is less ambiguous, right? I don't know. I think the, the I mean, like I said I've changed my mind. The weight of the evidence has shifted for me from. It would have happened if anyone had been president to know. I think this was a specific George W. Bush law. But where George W. Bush's decision making is clearly individualistic is the decision to invade Iraq. Correct. Right. Right. Like, like and, and the, the counterfactual there is if George W. Bush wasn't president, Al Gore would have been. Mm-hmm. And Al Gore was probably the most prominent American politician saying this is a really bad idea. Right. Like, don't do this. And I got to say, like, when we look back at Al Gore's career, I think we're going to say this is a guy who, on the major issues of his career, right, from global warming to the war to the invasion of Iraq, seems to have been more consistently right than just about anyone else in American politics. And I kind of feel like none of us gave him enough credit for that. Um, I agree. So I agree. For whatever it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> 
Foundation Radio is brought to you by 10th Ward Barbershop. Serving the historic 10th Ward in downtown Lawrenceville, 10th Ward Barbershop is a full-service barbershop offering quality haircuts, beard trims, and hot shaves. Adam gets his hair and beard trimmed by the owner of the shop, Ryan Kane, and he loves the laser point precision cuts and lineup he provides to him and countless other satisfied customers. But you don't have to take Adam's word for it. WWE superstars Corey Graves and The Fiend Bray Wyatt frequent 10th Ward for all their hair and beard trimming needs. Right now, all cuts and trims are by appointment only. So head over to their website at 10thwardbarbershop.com and book your appointment now with Kane, Jordan, and the rest of the team at 10th Ward Barbershop. That's 10thwardbarbershop.com. And we thank them for supporting the podcast. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm fascinated and I, and I, I really would love to sit here and, and pull apart, you know, the, the 9-11, just the thread when it comes to the decisions like George W. Bush. But I, I wanted to jump into a little bit more of the unfiltered candidates and mm-hmm. truly, I mean, just kind of piggybacking off of the George W. Bush conversation, how dangerous uh, they can be and the level of chaos that they can bring inside of history and inside of the country in that moment. Um, I know that one of the biggest, bigger, uh, topics that you bring up is Andrew Johnson. Uh, yeah. and we talk about how the civil rights revolution was delayed, uh, for almost an entire century because of this man's really malfeasance in the position. Yeah. He was totally unqualified. Uh, tell me a little bit more about some of the dangers that are presented when an unfiltered candidate be- attains that office. So it's kind of hard to, because of the extraordinary power of the presidency. And because on some of those, the most important of those powers, there are no constraints, right? Your worst case scenario is the nuclear, is, is, is the, you know, the nuclear button, right? Mm-hmm. The, the president of the United States is one of two people on earth who has the ability to end human civilization. And there really aren't a lot of restraints on that, right? If, 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 if he decides he wants to launch, well, then the American, you know, the, the American military officers who have command over those weapons have been trained for their entire lives to follow that order, not to ask right. questions about it. Um, and so that power is, you know, like that's a real worst case scenario, but it's, it's really bad, right? Like, like, like <laughs> right. we shouldn't, we shouldn't right. under cap. But I would say that people who say, well, don't pay attention to the worst case scenario. I'm like, well, look, did you not live through the 2008 financial crisis? Right. That's what happens when you would ignore the worst case scenario. You say, oh, well, the worst case scenario will never happen. Sometimes it does. Um, but beyond that, like, because the presidency has this sort of gargantuan level of impact on the world. The scale of damage that an unfiltered president can do has essentially no outer bound. And that's what should scare all of us, right? The nuclear weapons, obviously, is the infinite outer bound. But you talked about Andrew Johnson. Let's lay out exactly what happened here. When Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Andrew Johnson replaces him as president of the United States. Abraham Lincoln, obviously, is the great emancipator. The last speech he gave, the one for which John Wilkes Booth decided to assassinate him, was when he declared that black, you know, that black Americans actually should be able to vote. Right. Not, you know, and, you know, not all of them yet. He was like, not there yet, but we'll see. He would have gotten there, I think. And either way, like, this is an incredible statement of where were they, right? He's assassinated. He's replaced by Andrew Johnson, who the only good thing you can say about Andrew Johnson is he was the only Southern senator who did not go with it, did not leave the Senate when his state seceded, right? right. He was loyal to the union and good for, you know, like, like wouldn't, you would never take that away from him. Right. But in every other way, he was a catastrophe. So first, he was such a he was such an alcoholic that he was embarrassingly drunk at his own inauguration. Which, like, come on, man, like, yeah. <laughs> it's a big pretty, this is a pretty big deal. You should probably yeah, at least be able to little stand up, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but building on top of that, right? I mean, even being you know, much worse than that was that Johnson had grown up as a poor Southerner, you know, like dirt poor, and he had worked his way up, which you know, good for him. But it left him with this burning inferiority complex towards the Southern planter class, mm. and. What that meant was that he was really easy to manipulate. And so even though when he was first inaugurated, you know, northern northern Republicans and, you know, and black and northern and, and sort of blacks in both the north and south thought hoped and hoped that he would help be their continue to be their defender, what actually happened was he decided that that sort of blacks were in a conspiracy to oppress poor southern whites like him. Which, you know, we look back and we're like, this is madness, right? And so, but but it is what he believed. And so he dedicated himself to essentially restoring the pre-war Southern social order, right? He essentially wanted the South to be exactly the same as it was, but, you know, where, where people just weren't, weren't called slaves. That's basically the difference he was, he was embracing. And so when the war was over, the South had been defeated about as comprehensively as it is possible for a country to be defeated, right? Like a significant fraction of the population was dead. The economic wealth of the country had been destroyed. It was occupied. The North 
right? The North won and it was not ambiguous. <laughs> right. And that win was so decisive that the evidence to my mind, I'm drawing on one of my colleagues here, right, from Har- who, uh, Harvard historian who did marvelous work on this. Um, the evidence, Annette Gordon-Reed, I should say her name, Annette Gordon-Reed's amazing work on, on Reconstruction, um, that um, the evidence is not ambiguous that the South had said, look, we tried, we lost, we need to accept the terms that the North is imposing. We need to accept slavery, you know, accept civil rights because we don't have a choice. Like, it's over. We have no hope of victory. And what Johnson did was give them the hope that even though they had lost the war, they could win the peace, right? And so that that century of Southern resistance to integration sprang from Andrew Johnson's choices to give them that hope. And I just know it wasn't just a hope. That is what happened. Right. Right. Like they did, you know, they lost the war and they did win the peace. And it did take a century to get the United States to something that it, you know, easily could have been in 1867. And so it's, you know, I mean, I don't even know how do you calculate the scale of the damage done by a single person setting civil rights in the United States back by a century. And it's hard to really quantify that. I mean, even yeah. just putting it into current context, even what's happening now in, in the world. I mean, just think about if you take something and I don't want to, I, I don't mean to, you know, marginalize or, or, or make it not as big as it actually is. But if you think about the, the very grave and very real missteps that Donald Trump made during the initial onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, we don't even really, I mean, we're only into our, our third, fourth year in this now, yeah. in, into our new reality. We don't really have a full scope of what this looks like, sort of just domestically and potentially internationally, um, financially. These are very, and that's just a small segment of what the man did. So it's hard to really quantify even 100, 200 some odd years later, after the fact, it's hard to quantify that in a real way to say, wow, this guy was really terrible and here's why. So we're still living through a lot of those issues right now. We are. No, I mean, so, I mean, the, the, these issues don't, right, they don't get smaller with time. If you think about the sort of how COVID-19 will, will ripple through, through, the, through eternity in a real, very real way. Well, before COVID-19 in 2018, Johns Hopkins University did an assessment of how prepared the different countries in the world were for handling a pandemic. And the country that came first was the United States. Wow. Right? First, the most prepared to handle a pandemic of any country in the world. But when it actually came, our performance was vastly inferior to that of almost every other developed country. And when we mean that in the most unambiguous of ways, right? Per capita, we just lost more people. Hundreds of thousands of Americans died who, you know, if we had just lost as many people as, say, the French or the Germans did per capita, would not have, right? So I'm not even saying if we'd actually done best, we just had to be mediocre, Right. And we could have. Right. And it, it is impossible to lay that at the feet of anyone but the president of the United States. Right. And the sort of unimaginable incompetence of putting, you know, Jared Kushner, a guy who, you know, let's be clear. Right. Who's right. Whose sig- signal achievement, quote unquote, and, you know, air quotes on that one. Right. In business was the purchase of 666 Fifth Avenue. Right. The most overpriced purchase at the top of the worst real estate bubble in history, right? right. This is literally the single worst real estate purchase of all time. Right. right? Which, right. Like un, undeniably yeah. the worst, right? In a weird way, is an achievement, right? Like right. if you're going to screw up, don't do it halfway. Go right? big or go home. Yeah. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. So, so, so a guy whose signal business achievement is that, since obviously, you know, he had been handed everything by his, you know, wealthy and criminal father, um, um, like, is that really the guy you want running our response to, to our response to the greatest public health crisis since 1918? I'm not sure he would be my first choice. Yeah, not at the top of my list. Yeah, let's ignore Fauci. Let's ignore all the warning signs. Let's throw away the playbook. Give it to Jared. He's got it. Feels and, very, and, yeah, feels very, very hollow. not a choice that any other president would make, right? Like, you know, like lots of, you know, We've had lots of Republican presidents, and right. it's impossible to imagine any of them doing that. We've had lots of Democratic presidents, it's possible to imagine. If, you, if George H.W. Bush had been president of the United States, right, like the machine-like competence with which the U.S. government would have responded would have been the envy of the world. Uh, unquestionably, and even I, 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 I don't mean to give the man this much credence or, or credit, but I can't imagine for a second that someone like George W. Bush wouldn't have mobilized in a way that was even baseline. You know, because there are a lot of things that George W. Bush did very poorly um, on a scale that just seems to never end with the slide. I can't imagine that anyone in that position 
with at least some modicum of thought would have said, wow, this is really bad. We should probably take this seriously. And all they would have had to do was the bare minimum and it would have been better. But again, it goes back to this idea of vetting these people prior to them becoming like the top of their party. And you talk a little bit about the the really the, the serious importance of of the, the sort of the elites in the party vetting these people uh, yeah. to ensure that they are qualified, that they are capable, that they are knowledgeable. So I, I want to ask this in sort of a two part question: um, How crucial is it to make sure that these folks that are being vetted um, are actually subjected to that high level of scrutiny? But then also. Is it imperative, you know, if you look at examples like, you know, uh, Andrew Johnson, we mentioned, um, Harry Truman, Zachary Tyler, or Taylor rather, um, or even Lyndon Baines Johnson, you could throw him in that in that ring. How crucial is it in that context to then vet the vice president in the event of a catastrophic situation? So the answer to it is it's important for both, right? So the first one, the vetting, the vetting process is crucial because Political elites will always know presidential candidates better than you or I can. Right. Right. Most of us will never meet a president of the United States. Most of us will never have close personal contact with a president of the United States. We will never get right. Getting to know who someone really is is incredibly difficult. Um, yeah. Forty percent. It used to be fifty percent. Now it's forty. Forty percent of all marriages in the United States fail. Right. Presumably, you know, at some at some large fraction of those people are saying, well, the person I thought I was marrying and the person I actually married are not the same person, right? Right. So you pres- you know the person you're marrying bet- a lot better than the person you're voting for, or at least I hope that's true. Um, so if you can make that mistake at the with that level of detail, imagine how easy it is to make a mistake when you're voting, right? But political elites spend years with these people in, you know, in the proverbial smoke-filled rooms. They know what they're really, really like. And that's incredibly important because when you bef- what we know about power, right? When you when we talk about the presidency, we talk about any position of leadership. What we're really talking about is power, right? And power changes who you are. Power transforms in, in, in a very profound. It is one of, getting power is one of the most profound experiences a human being can undergo, right? What we know is for most people, getting power makes them worse. Mm. It makes them more aggressive, more Machiavellian, more sexually aggressive, more manipulative, you name it, right? It just makes them worse. For a small fraction of people, it actually makes them better. They become more honest, more community-oriented, more altruistic. What that tells us is that power is a liberating force, Mm. right? When you give someone power, then they they can stop pretending to be who they think you want them to be in order so that you give them power and can be the person they actually are underneath. And so when you give someone power, right, when you give someone power, when you make that decision, you really want to know who they actually are when, you know, who are they when the cameras are off and the pressure is on. Mm. And most of us are never going to get the chance to get that level of detailed information about someone who's running for president. Political elites do. So they need to use that to, you know, both to block or promote people who they think will be a good choices, but also to inform us of what they think. And you can sort of pick up on that, right? You can see cases where political elites who know someone really, really well are sort of, no, that, you know, not him, right? Whatever, you know, you can vote for anyone, but don't vote for that guy. And they usually send those signals pretty unambiguously. Um, so it is really important that we do this vetting process. And 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 we should say, we have a role in that. We as citizens have a role in that process too, right? It's not just about the elites. And we should talk about how the elites fail because that's that, that is maybe just as important. But when you talk about the vice presidency, so we've been lucky for a long time, right? Like we haven't had a vice president, um, we haven't had a president die in office since Kennedy, and we haven't had a vice president take over since Gerald Ford, right? Um, and so that is, you know, like, you know, thank God, like that. That's that's good. You never want to go through that. That we're, we're, we've been very, very lucky that way, and that's a long stretch of time where the United States historically has not had been that lucky. And I mean, that's not surprising, right? Like the Secret right. Service is a lot better at its job than it used to be, and medical technology is a lot better at its job than it used to be. But also note that our leaders are getting older and, you know, medical technology is not perfect, right? Over time, this is going to cause some issues. Right. And both in the sense of, well, people might die in office, but maybe actually more worrying is whether they could be debilitated in office, right? Where age age just makes you more prone to sickness. It make, makes you more prone to a lot of different things. And just sort of, well, maybe it, it's actually a big problem that this is something we should really be concerned. And so, yeah, historically, vice Presidents have not been picked with anything in mind other than how do I, how are, is this person going to help me win? 
That mm. is literally the only category that vice presidents have, have have been chosen based on. When John McCain picked Sarah Palin, I'll say like people think of this as some gigantic historic aberration. And I'm like, no, that's actually Not pretty normal. Right. Right. Uh, Part of the course. For, 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 yeah. Part of the course. Um, so, um, so I do think that as that, you know, I would say that a one that what we as as citizens need to do is shift the way we evaluate vice presidential candidates. Mm. Where what a vice presidential candidate does is it tells us what the candidate prioritizes, right? And so if the candidate's picking someone where we're like, oh yeah, that person actually could be president of the United States, that's actually a good sign about how seriously they take their responsibilities in the job, right? Give an example, when when Bill Clinton, you know, traditionally people talk about balancing the ticket. So they pick someone who's very, very different from the top of the ticket. Bill Clinton picked someone who was about as similar to himself as it was possible to be, right? right. Another Southern moderate Democratic senator. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, like one was a governor, one was a senator. That was the difference, right? right? Um, and, and he was basically sending a signal that if something happens to me, you're going to get the same guy. Right. That was kind of, you know, kind of, that was kind of striking. Clinton, Clinton light, if you will. Yeah. Foundation Radio is brought to you by The Dugout. The Dugout provides custom quality apparel at an affordable price. Modern style mixed with classic designs, you'll find retro t-shirts brought into the 21st century. Adam has several of his favorite t-shirts in rotation from the team at The Dugout, including customized Dudley Boys, Prince and the Revolution, and the Notorious B.I.G. t-shirts. Right now, if you purchase your items through their Etsy site and use promo code FOUNDATION, you'll receive 15% off your entire order. That's right, 15% off your entire order. Follow them on Instagram Instagram at the dugout brand. Follow the link on their Etsy shop and use your promo code foundation for 15% off your entire order. The dugout custom quality apparel at an affordable price. Um, I think, well, I want to go back to, I really, I, I, I want to ask you a question about Trump and, and sort of the 2024 election, but I'm curious because I would love to know, because I feel like I'm, I'm very interested in, in Gerald Ford as an individual, yeah. as a politician, he's sort of this apparition in history, this sort of weird a uh, system glitch, if you will, where he becomes vice president and then president and has never been elected. Yeah. What's your analysis of Gerald Ford as president? Would you classify him as a filter candidate or unfiltered? What is your analysis of him being sort of this ultimate litmus test of not having any vetting and just attaining this position? Yeah. So we should analyze Ford and, and Harry Truman the same way. Okay. Okay. So they're the only two vice presidents who were picked by the party elite in the sure and certain knowledge that this person would soon be president of the United States. Fascinating. Right? Okay. Yeah. So Gerald Ford, because, you know, the party elite knew that Richard Nixon was not long for this Oval Office. And Harry Truman, because the party elite knew that, that Franklin Roosevelt was not long for this world. Um, and in both cases, they were very deliberate saying, okay – who do we think should be president of the United States? Mm. And what that is, is as close as the United States will ever get to a parliamentary system. Wow. Right. And in both cases, I was like, I think it worked out quite well. Um, you know, you can differ about Ford's decision to pardon Richard Nixon. I used to support it. Now I oppose it. But like, you know, the, it was a, whether or not I think it was right or wrong, it was reasonable. Right. Um, and Harry Truman, right? Historians have come to a basic consensus that he was an extraordinary president, not just a good one, but a near great one. Agreed. And when you, you know, you look, people sort of always say, you always hear people complain about the U.S. government. It's not working. I'm like, we can all agree it's not working as well as we'd like it to. I just know, you know, not that long ago, the United States went from 1933 to like 1969 with a stretch of people where every single one of them was someone where you go, yeah, I am totally comfortable. You know, I, I range yep. between totally comfortable to incredibly excited yep. that this person is president of the United States. Agreed. Um, so it is possible for the system to work extremely well for extremely long stretches of time. Um, and so in Harry Truman's case, right? So the, Demo the Democratic Party elite knew that, he, that Franklin Roosevelt was very, very sick. They were, did not have any doubts that he was not going to survive his term. And they knew that they did not want Henry Wallace to be, to be the next president of the United States because he was too far left. And they essentially forced Henry Wallace off the ticket and replaced him with Truman, whom they knew from his terms time in the Senate would be, you know, and they had a very, very high opinion of him. They thought he would be an excellent president, as in fact he was. Um, and I'll say, you know, if, if, when you read the book, I, th I think people will enjoy the story about how that happened because it is, you yeah. know, it is remarkable. It, I mean, it's genuinely funny. If you ever thought that a guy with an axe might play a crucial role in American politics. Well, it happened. Now, um, I was going to say, I, I want people to listen to the show, but I also want them to get the book. So I'm not going to give away the full trick here. So, but you definitely got to read it. Thank you. <laughs> 
Um, I just, one other thing I want to ask you, uh, continue before, you know, we, we sort of tie up the conversation here. Um, I want to know as far as how it's measured, okay? How do you measure being a filtered president and being a, an unfiltered president? And what I found fascinating in, in this conversation, I mean, it doesn't really surprise me that mm-hmm. Donald Trump is the most unfiltered president we've ever had. He's a lot of the top of that list and not for a oh, great yeah. reason. But the fact that Joe Biden is uh, by, from what you indicated is a wide margin, the most filtered president. So tell me how, I guess, first, how those metrics are measured. And then second, how someone like Joe Biden could be considered the most filtered president. So by a huge margin, I mean, so much so that I have graphs at the back of the book where I sort of have these charts when I lay out, you know, who the level of filtration. I said that Joe, I had to redo all the charts because Biden is so much more filtered than anyone else that he broke the vertical axis. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Right? Um, <laughs> That's crazy. So, so what I do is I give people what I call a filtration score, okay. right? And it's, it's, it's actually very easy to calculate. You just start with the number of years they had in senior political office, right? And so I define that as the vice presidency, the cabinet, the Senate, the House, governor of a state, or a flag rank officer in the United States military, right? So that's a senior political office. And how many years do they have? And, you know, for most presidents, then you're done. They say there are sort of special cases where you got to make some corrections. So, for example, um, the person was the vice president, the president died. Well, then it's not a case of them being chosen, right? It just They right. just elevated to the top job. So then you got to say, okay, the, the, that, that years of filtration don't really count. Or if they were well, in the 19th century, what we call a dark horse candidate, someone who were the convention deadlocks and nobody, and you know, and the, all the main candidates sort of knock each other out and somebody gets picked out of the blue. Well, that person has been around for a long time, but we shouldn't think of them as filtered because pretty clearly the, he, they have been around for a long time and nobody is going, oh, I want that person to be president of the United States because if they were, they would not have been a dark horse, right? Right. So we should say like, oh, they were filtered and the filter was like, uh-uh-uh, but sometimes that person wins. Um. But the basis is just look at that. And so up until Joe Biden, James Buchanan and Gerald Ford were tied for first. With 20, wow. they had got filtration scores of 24. Wow. Joe Biden had 44. Wow. 36 years in the Senate and another eight years as vice president. That is unbelievable. It, it was shocking to me what I did. I was like, like that, I literally went, no, that can't be right, can it? And yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I'm going back. I'm changing everything. No, this can't be. This yeah. isn't it. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess when you look at it in a context and then and then with as far, someone as far as Trump, and what's going to get into the last question of the conversation, which I'll get to after we talk about this, how do you measure someone as unfiltered as Trump? So what measure, what do you mean? Measure like what as about? far as, like, as far as the factors, like how you determine that he is the most unfiltered, it's just based upon the fact that he has no experience in government. Yeah. That's in his it. case, it's really simple, right? He's the only person to become president of the United States who has had zero days of government service before he or she became president, right? There've been lots of people who were pretty inexperienced. Um, right. Chester Arthur was commissioner of the port of, you know, like customs commissioner for the port of New York, you know, and then he became vice president and he immediately becomes president. Like, eh, okay, that doesn't really <laughs> seem like your ideal path. Right, uh, and he actually didn't do too badly, which is impressive. Um, but but no one has ever been. Well, I was CEO of my of the company I inherited from my dad, and now I'm president of the United States. Now, I and guess yeah. I was going to say so. So I guess the question that I have too, as far as being an unfiltered president, um, obviously, as we've seen in our current reality, um, it can be incredibly dangerous and yeah. really terrible. But you do list and talk about some examples, folks like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. They can be really – they're among some of the greatest presidents of all time. Um, how do you see the differential there between someone yeah. like a Trump – obviously, we kind of know this, but someone like a Trump or even a Chester Arthur and someone like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln? Do you think it comes down to – again, it sort of ties back to what we were talking about before with Kennedy and, and, and W. Is it – do the situations make the man or do, does the man make the situation – You know, does he, does he absolve it? So the situation counts, right? Like, I mean, um, Hyman Rickover, the American admiral who created the nuclear Navy, used to say, you know, luck is better than skill. I can't use you if you're not lucky. Right. Right. So luck counts. Like, situation counts. There's no question about it. But what, 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 I, what I worked out in this book is there are a set of characteristics we can use to evaluate these unfiltered leaders. And the way I think of it is like kind of, every, every unfiltered leader is a gamble. Mm. What I think about is you can weight the dice. 
right? Like, like you can just sort of, you know, you can't guarantee it comes up in your favor, but you can really improve your odds. And so the first thing you do is you want to avoid, avoid the false signals, right? So there's a set of personality traits that are called the dark triad, right? So Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy. Um, and there are three sort of personality traits that they tend to co- they tend to be comorbid, right? They they often appear in the same place. And what all these three th- these three things do is they make you seem really impressive on first appearance, but over time they're awful. Right. So we often will meet narcissists and be, wow, that guy's really great. They should be in charge. And then we put them in charge and go, oh, that was a mistake. Yeah. Right. So you want to avoid people who have who are, have or characters of the dark triad. You know, avoid people who got it. You know, who had it easy. Right. So if they had this is what the unearned advantage is about. So we often ask people, did you learn from your experience? Right. And what that means is we're thinking of experience as a developmental process. Now, learning from your experience is important. Right. Everyone should learn from their experience. But experience isn't just a developmental process. Experience is also a revelatory process. What I mean is while you are getting the experience other people can observe you and what you do in the process of that experience and learn about what your capabilities actually are. They can reveal, you can be revealed to them, right? But if you come from a wealthy and powerful family who can arrange that even, no matter how badly you do in your last job, you get promoted into your next one, then we are short-circuiting the revelatory components of experience. And we just know less about you. So that's a pretty bad sign, right? If you've sort of done that. Um, so you want to avoid unfiltered leaders who have the negative indicators, who have, you know, the, the false positives, the negative indicators that are the that seem positive at first. And then what you want to select for is people who have positive indicators, right? So the great psychologist, Dean Keith Simonton, uh, the great the greatest psychologist of performance, what he found is that there's one trait that predicts, um, you know, like presidential success and leadership performance more broadly in many, many different domains. It's what he called intellectual brilliance. So that is not the same thing as IQ, right? Mm. It's related, but it is definitely not the same thing. It's a combination of, you know, very high sort of horsepower, but with openness to new ideas, right? Curiosity, um, wide, you know, wide sort of wide variety of interests. Um, So Abraham Lincoln, you know, had only three months of formal education. He's also the only president ever to hold a patent. High of interest, right? Not the person you'd pick, but there you go. Theodore Roosevelt, right, had lots, you know, went to Harvard, has, you know, was very well educated, um, you know, and again, it went from a wealthy family, so that might be a mark against him. But on the mark for him is before he became president, and he became president in his early 40s, right? No one will ever be as young in the White House as TR, ever, right, ever. Right. Before he became president, he had already written 12 books, some of which are to this day considered all-time classics. Wow. Right? So that's intellectual brilliance. So when you're thinking about unfil- you, you want to select for intellectual brilliance, and the other thing I say you often want to select for is handicaps. And what I mean by that is characteristics that make it harder to get the job, but not harder to do the job. Mm, okay. So we know in, you know, in basically every domain of American life, if you are black or female or gay or any or, or you know, any number of different traits, it's just harder to get to the top. Right. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the demographic profiles of Fortune 500 CEOs or any other, right? You know, sort yeah. of any other sort of place that it, essentially any other part of American life that is not purely athletic. And the, the results are unambiguous. Right. Um, and so, okay. But it obviously doesn't make it hard, you know, being black or female doesn't make it harder to be a good CEO. It just makes it harder to become a CEO. And so what that should tell us is that people who have handicaps, right, have underlying capabilities that are larger than people who do not. The way I say this, if you can win the 100-yard dash when you're wearing a weighted vest, just imagine how fast you'll be when you take it off. And so when you're doing unfiltered leaders, you want to select you know, against the people who have these negative traits and for the people who have these positive signals because then you're really improving your odds. So Barack Obama had only been senator for a few years when he became elected president. He was, by any objective standard, not qualified, right? Like, like it was, it is not a close call. Right. But he had also risen, you know, from rel- from 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 poverty. He was African American, and you know, like you know, the, no other African American has ever been that close to the White House. So you gotta gotta believe maybe that tells us something about him. He'd also been editor of Harvard Law Review. Right. 
right? That tells us a lot about his underlying capabilities and that the intellectual brilliance and such that people look. And it should mean that if you're going to pick an unfiltered leader, someone like him is a really good bet. Now, I want to talk about this because I know, like I said, to, to tie up at the end here, I want to talk about the potential of 2024 and another unfiltered, which I feel maybe, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, another unfiltered candidate who has sort of thrown his name out there into the stratosphere. Uh, Please Ron- don't say Kanye. No, for God's sakes, no. <laughs> I, I'm going to bleep that out, sir, now that you said that. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. Well, actually, you know what? Maybe we should take – no, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Uh, Ron DeSantis, um, arguably in the same league as as, as Mr. West, but um, Ron DeSantis has now been uh, a candidate that has been talked about yeah. uh, in the 2024 presidential election. What, do you, what are your feelings on him and, and the potential – of sort of this Trump DeSantis headbutting conversation. And based on your analysis and this filtration theory, what do you think his chances would be up against not just someone like Biden, but someone like Trump? Yeah. So, so my, my book is not about picking winners, right? It's right. about picking performance. Uh, and I'll note that if, if Ron DeSantis ran in 2024, like he would still code as unfiltered, but only barely right, right? here. Like he, he would, at that point he would have been governor of Florida or a pretty big state for six years Sort of, you know, that, 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 that's a, that's, you know, that, that's a that's little a pretty... below average for presidents, but it's not that far below. Right. Um, so, you know, so, so there you go. Um, so I'll, I'll just, I'll just note, right. So the, that, um, my concern with, so let's talk about, you asked, you asked me essentially, could he win? But I want to, I'll, I'll, I'll address that, but we should also talk about, could he do a good job if he did win? There you go. That's right? a better so, way to yeah. phrase okay. it. Yeah. So, so, so if he won, like, can he win? You know, it's, I mean, certainly the Republican party establishment is lining up behind him. Uh, very convincing. The Republican Party establishment is not without power. The, I, I am quite certain that the only reason Trump won the nomination in 2016 is because there were so many candidates running against him. And if they had not split the vote so many different ways, it would absolutely have have sort of coalesced around, you know, Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or someone else. And then they would have he would have he he would have won uh, beaten Trump quite handily. Right. Right. The problem was they all stayed in for forever until finally Ted Cruz was the only guy left standing. And it turned out the Republican Party elites hated, you know, who who hated Trump and were unambiguous that they hated Trump. Right. Like hated Ted Cruz so much they would rather have Trump, which is sort of like, wow. Um, <laughs> it's baffling on its face. Yeah. Yep. It just, just, I mean, just astonishing. I, I, yeah. Um, I'll tell you some story. I've never met Cruz, but I, I've met some people who met Cruz and their stories are amazing. Um, but um, <laughs> God. You no, know, the funny thing is not like liberals, like, like very conservative people who know Cruz and like, oh my God, the stories are astonishing. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but anyways, um, so if Ron DeSantis is the only guy who's running against Trump, then I think he's got a chance. My own personal bet is I don't think it's a great chance. Right. Because, um, because Trump's hold on the Republican party base is remarkable. And my suspicion is that that hold is large enough that it will be able to be able to use it to get the primaries. Also note that like, DeSantis is kind of a black hole of charisma, right? Like, yes. like, like whatever else you say about Trump, and you can say a lot, he really makes for compelling television. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's just good at the showmanship aspect, right? He's not good in the sense that we used to evaluate presidents, by which he's a double disaster failure, but in the sense of his particularly Republican Party primaries, which are kind of contests and who can be the most alpha male. Right. He's really good at that. Yeah. And I would not, you know, take Ron DeSantis, who is, to put it mildly, not quick on his feet. I wouldn't bet on him in a debate setting against Trump, assuming, right, we just, you know, like, like Trump may, may or may not have medical issues. We just don't know. Right. right? Like, like, it's kind of hard to judge. Um, so given that. Um, but the question you're the other question, I, you know, my book might address is, could he do a good job? And, and if let's assess him as a filtered candidate, right, since he is right. the choice of the establishment, six years, like he's really, you know, he's right. And he's right at the edge. So let's say he's a filtered candidate. You know, like it's ambiguous. Um, so my book usually says that filtered presidents are quite successful. But it has an exception, right? James Buchanan, the most filtered president up to Biden, who's also the worst, the most, the worst president of all time. And so what happened there? And the answer is you have to understand the particular dynamics of how Buchanan became president, which is, right, that at this period in time, because you had to get two-thirds of the vote in the Democratic Party convention to get the nomination, Mm. it was mathematically impossible to become president without the support of the South. And so what the South did was say, we will not support any candidate who isn't willing to give us everything that we want, right? Like, like, like the, the, the unconditional, no negotiation demands was you had to be willing to give the South everything. And the term for that at the time was actually people who were called dough faces, right? And so 
When a single interest concentrated interest group is able to capture control of a party's nomination process like that, it can not just make sure that only its supporters get power, it can constantly escalate its demands, right? Like we got we can we can just ask for more because we'll always get it because right. people want to be president, so they'll give us whatever we want. And so in the case of Buchanan, you got a president who was picked to give the South everything it wanted, became president, gave the South everything that it wanted, and is remembered as a disaster because, of course, that was exactly the wrong thing to do. Right. And so in that scenario, when the selection process is actually selecting for failure, a filtered president is actually the worst outcome. And it's up to us as citizens to be like, no, no, we need to pick someone else in that situation. Um, so my concern with the Republican Party would be that it is not clear to me that the Republican Party's electoral processes are currently selecting for governance success. Mm. Right. So Ron DeSantis is a very smart man. Like, you know, if you really look at his background, he's a very smart man. Um, and he has had significant policy triumphs in Florida, right? Like in, in, a, in a lot of different ways that we sort of forget about. But it's pretty clear that what he is running on is none of those. Right. Right? He's running on his abilities as a culture, war, a culture warrior. And those abilities do not tell us a lot about his ability to govern successfully. And so I would be, if I, you know, like if I were making that assumption, I'd say, well, the concern for my, for me in this scenario is not that he would be another, right, it's not that he would be some unfiltered catastrophe who just like doesn't know how to execute the job of the presidency. The concern for me would be that he'd be another Buchanan. Mm. Someone whose entire administration, entire like policies and approach is oriented around serving the very, you know, the relatively small block of Americans who got him the nomination but whose interest, right? Whose whose construction of their interests is like is you know based fundamentally antagonistic to the interests of the country as a whole. Gotham, I really want to thank you for this conversation. I could sit here and talk to you about this book and this topic and politics in general for the next six hours if we could. But I I know you have other things to do than to talk to me and probably better things. But where can everybody find you on social media? Where can everybody follow you and your theory and things that you have going on in your life? Thank you, Adam. I uh, really appreciate it. So I am I am uh, at G Mukunda at G M U K U N D A on Twitter. Um, you can find me on www.gothamukunda, you know, G-A-U-T-A-M-M-U-K-U-N-D-A.com. And there you can sign up for my mailing list. New mailing list. Uh, I think I think we put out one issue so far. So we're, we're doing the second <laughs> one soon. <laughs> um, love it. I love it. And, and uh, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Hey, and I want to just make sure I mention this again. The book is called Picking Presidents, How to Make the Most Consequential Decision in the World. Uh, my guest today is Gotham Makunda. Thank you again so much for your time. Um, I'm going to sign up for your mailing list so I can absolutely read uh, issue one and then be a part of issue two. Looking forward to it. Uh, Gotham, thank you again for your time, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. This is a pleasure. Foundation Radio is hosted, recorded, and executive produced by me, Adam Barnard. Additional production and narration provided by Sam Krebs. Mixing, mastering, and engineering is done by Carl Pinnell. The show's intro and outro music is written, recorded, and performed by Dumb Ugly. Additional musical accompaniment produced and recorded by Enrichment. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almey. Follow the show on Twitter at FND Radio Pod and find us on Instagram at Foundation underscore radio. This has been a Butts Carlton Media Production. Butts Carlton Proprietor. <laughs>